Welcome to the 100th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the rapidly changing consumer economy. This episode is brought to you by Loose Threads membership, which gives you actionable analysis, insights, and events that drive growth, and Loose Threads Espresso, your energizing and high-pressure filter for consumer news and context. We also have a newsletter that features the latest analysis of the consumer economy, and you can check it all out at loosethreads.com. Joining me today is Frederick Bouchardi, the founder of Joya Studio, a fragrance design company known for its candles, perfumes, soaps, and other scented products. Frederick fell into the profession after working as a journalist and quickly realized this new opportunity allowed him to put his design skills and penchant for collaboration to use. Over the past decade, he's built a design and manufacturing company known for its own brand and countless collaborations with everyone from A24 to Katz's Deli. I'm not a chemist. I'm not a perfumer. I kind of have picked this all up along the way. It's just that our company now, through this weird path that we've taken, has this wealth of knowledge that ends up being really valuable. We had a great talk that touched on both the creative and operational sides of building a business, the topical mix that has embodied our podcast from day one, all the way to today on our 100th episode. Thanks to everyone that's listened along the way. And here's my talk with Frederick Bouchardi. So why don't we start, I guess, talk a bit about your background and then kind of how you got into candles sure. and fragrance and all that. So my background originally is in writing, verse writing, poetry, and my concentration in college was in 19th century American poetry. And I was spending a lot of time verse writing, but also learning critical thinking. So I pursued a career in journalism, and I was working for a French TV station called Arte, sort of French-German, it's their version of A&E. And they had sent two French-Algerian journalists to New York. And this was after September 11th. It was sort of about New York rebuilding and just the short and long-term impacts of what that would do. But at the same time, the days were so long, and it wasn't 100% satisfying or fulfilling because I was helping them to tell their stories and not my own. And so... Also, in classic New York fashion, pretty recently out of college, I'm looking at full hustle mode and so many different jobs and opportunities. And one presented itself that seemed really cool, which was to work on a kind of design project for a large mass uh, American retailer. It involved scent. The weirdest part was that it was sort of a back-to-school campaign, but involved home scent and scented candle and stuff. And so this was a, you know, a side project, late night, early morning, brainstorm sessions, sitting in a you know, home office, bedroom, laptop situation. So I started to look into my friend. She was going to be handling the graphic design part and sort of engaged me or we engaged each other to do the storytelling and the identity, brand identity part. Looking into fragrance as you know, I want to do, I did a kind of deep dive into not just the bells and whistles and how we could make something smell and look pretty, but what is the nature of this kind of thing? If this is going to be in a mass retailer with 500 locations in the States, what is the componentry? What does that look like? Where is the supply chain? And what suppliers is this project going to be supporting? Looking into fragrance world, I realized that, as anyone would, the bulk of the finished product is based on the base material. So for candle, that'll be something like 
80 to 92% base, which is some blend of wax. For fine fragrance or perfume, it's about the same. And then for things like lotion and soaps, it gets closer to 99%. And this was at the time when there was just not a lot of transparency in the market. There were not as many of the niche, beautiful entrepreneurial brands the only company I remember at the time that was doing anything with respect to sustainability and origin story and informing their customer base about what they were buying was Aveda. And so I started to look at different base material possibilities. And just through searching the internet, found what I thought was an interesting possible base, which was mostly comprised of a natural tropical palm oil wax. And that supplier had proactively formed a roundtable for sustainable harvestation of palm oil. And that wax had a beautiful natural effect that could be combined with natural oils and cotton wicks. If it was heated to a certain temperature, it had a really pretty sort of sheen. And so started to experiment with that. And then we created a boutique collection of scented candles using this, I think, more sustainable and modern material. Then we're able to combine it with packaging that would be stylish and also, you know, not use as many glues, would ship flat and just be something that would be more modern and something that is so obvious to, you know, our generation, but at the time was not being that well explored. And so this actually worked and it was distributed across the states. And then at the same time, I'm still working, busting my ass at my regular job and looking for a different sort of creative outlet, I realized, okay, this is a different opportunity for me. And now I'm sort of becoming passionate about the ingredients and also the opportunity. So I realized that there seemed to be a huge white space in the fragrance world. And candles seemed like a really smart starting point, again, because there were accessible ways to address the issues of the componentry that just seemed so old school at the time. And because it seemed like really no one else was going there. At the same time, worked with that same supplier to create a collection of my own candles. And then through a friend, got lucky and had a meeting with a buyer at Saks. I just went to meet him for advice because he took my meeting. And I brought a box or a duffel bag of samples that had been printed on an inkjet printer at home. He looked at them and said, these are great. Why don't I introduce you to the fragrance buyer? We just kind of shuttled across the cubicles. And then I'm meeting the fragrance buyer. He said, these are great. You know, this sort of purple. We have a different story going right now. So we would need this in a different tone. He pulled out the chip from his Pantone book, handed it to me. He said, if you switch that one to this, we'll just buy these. And so I left this meeting and called my parents. And it's like, this is pretty easy. (laughs) But then came the matter of getting them actually made. Then I sort of instantly got a crash course in the barriers to entry of this industry, which is one that is firmly based on, you know, established businesses and those practices and supplier relationships. And it's pretty old school. And, you know, I like some of the old school relationships, so I wasn't mad at it, but I realized it was going to be actually kind of difficult to navigate. Ended up subleasing a space in East New York to figure out how to get these made and then started to do small batches. Very luckily got a great consumer response and editorial response. I think other people had felt the same way about there being a need for stuff that looked cool and was stylish and smelled great, but also didn't have such a negative impact. 
And then I just started to luckily get inquiries from other stores and spas, department stores. And then pretty soon it accidentally became a business, incorporated in 2006. And without knowing what I was doing, it had a sharp sort of distribution strategy from the get-go, wherein this great established department store, this great spa where you know they're actually burning them, so it's really accelerating people's exposure to the product, and then sort of design shops. So we were coming in at all different angles. The thing that I had not exactly predicted and didn't end up mattering in the long run was that so many other people had the exact same idea at the exact same time. So basically exactly when I launched, we started to do trade show circuit and Dallas and Pacific Northwest and Chicago and Atlanta and High Point and the, all the circuit, which I now find to be the most painful possible way to expose a product. But at the time, it was the only way. Are these all fragrance trade shows? So they're seeing 10,000 no, other candles? No, they're or? mostly gift shows okay. and things like that. I started a fragrance and beauty trade show hmm. in 2011. But there's more of a need for those in Europe where in Italy, for instance, they have something like 400 independent perfumeries. In hmm. the States, they have less than 10. And Italy is so much more concentrated. They just have a different appreciation for and relationship with scent. But so I saw, you know, 25, at least 25 other sort of natural, sustainable boutique candle companies, not using the same materials or same design ideas. I mean, soon they were because, you know, the bigger, more established ones, as soon as you do one trade show, they literally knock you off. It's not a cliche. It really happens. In seeing that, I realized a couple things very quickly. Number one, I wasn't going to spend my life traveling around, setting up and breaking down trade shows that didn't seem to be the best way to spend time doing business after got some initial exposure to it. At least not those kinds of trade shows. And also that I need to pivot into other forms of expression and also product extensions. So this first batch is going. You realize you had to make them yourself, yeah. basically. What was the easiest and the hardest part of that process? You just kind of started doing it out of necessity, right? Yeah. The easiest part was not easy. It was pure luck. was just the organic growth was kind of happening. And just the response was great. And so... Even without so much hunting, the inbound request from clients was strong. What I didn't realize was that in sort of having to manufacture, that it was going to change the nature of the opportunities. So on one hand, with my own brand, I'm working on product extensions and other you know ways to intimately connect with our customer base. And that's why we eventually went into you know perfume and light bath and body stuff was to have something that people are actively putting on their bodies and on their skin and also to play a different role in their lives. So it's not just that we are involved in the personality of their home, but also their personal identity. Having a manufacturing facility also begot these other opportunities where friends of mine who were great designers, artists, architects, ones who were emerging who were you know, not seeking giant licensing deals, but more ways to express themselves and their brand visions or their own personal visions, would say, hey, okay, you're doing stuff with scent and you're making it. That sounds cool. Why don't we work on something together? And so this part really kind of exploded. To get back to what is difficult about manufacturing and the world of fragrance, mostly everything. There's different ways to ship different products across the world. There's constantly changing regulations and allergens based on 
you know, standards that are very difficult to predict. There's supply chain issues, raw material shortages, and there's even just the very basic starting a business where there's heavy lifting problems of good staff, accountability, and then just, you know, the really obvious things, maintaining inventory, where do you get the corrugated packaging to ship your stuff to the beautiful packaging, the secondary packaging that the actual product is about. There's just so much other knowledge that is hard to come by. And so this is why the big players are so big and why they stay around, you know, notwithstanding distributing in foreign countries, accounting for changes in currency in other countries and how you're able to kind of sustain that. These are things for like rogue people or entrepreneurs or insiders that are like, it took me 10 years to learn this stuff. So finding great team, I think is quite difficult, especially this part. The brand part is so exciting so many people want to be involved in that, but the making is hard and what we do is industrial and we're moving thousands of kilos of stuff all the time. I don't think that anyone would disagree that this kind of work is important and it has sort of been neglected as part of the American experience. And so many years later, I realized that this is an important thing that we do and we're creating opportunity that's local mm -hmm. and good. Can you talk of the process of actually making a candle? Do yeah. people know that? Well, in the case of this first collection of candle, it was more about the material selection. So it's very specific wax type heated to a very specific temperature. Then there's two different forms that it will take in terms of the finished product. One is just a raw wax pillar. And so those go into metal molds. They're relatively easy to source. Now we make our lives so complicated. We do custom silicone, plaster, and 3D modeling. But back then, it's just these traditional aluminum molds. Those get heated to a certain temperature so that when the wax, which is heated to a certain temperature and blended with fragrance and any sort of coloring that is needed, they don't react adversely to each other, meaning that the wax won't pull away from the container that it's being cast into. Otherwise, if it's poured into glass or any sort of container and meant to live there, it's actually generally a different formulation. It can be more or less the same raw material, but it has slightly different properties so that it's heated to a specific temperature. And yeah, again, this is stuff I never intended to learn. Are you on like reading books about this? Or like yeah, reading books. And then there's manuals mm -hmm. for it. And I was subleasing a space in a candle manufacturing studio. Oh, Okay. This wasn't just like you had a WeWork and yeah, exactly. You had a table. It's sort of no, no. This is a good question and something people ask a lot because there is science and chemistry involved, but it's also a lot like painting an apartment. You need to spend the time to tape the corners, and if you spend a lot of time doing the setup, then the rest is operationally smoother. And there's still a million. You know, this is also not to discount my team that is the best in the world at this and does amazing stuff, and they have so many projects. There's a lot of other sensitive things in that, you know, every different scent has different properties, up to 75 different ingredients. All of them have different flashpoints. So you need to make sure that the wax is not at a certain temperature once you're introducing the fragrance. Otherwise, you're basically burning off all the volatile top notes. And the things that, you know, your end customer is paying for, you've basically already used in your manufacturing facility because it's burned off. There is 
access to this information. Because the scent is a whole nother peat, right? Like you make a candle, that's just a candle. Adding the scent that actually does something is a whole nother discipline as well, it seems. Whole nother discipline. But, you know, the candle, I think, is quite cool just on its own. The ambiance it creates, that light. I'm like a dim light sort of person. So that ambiance has value in its own right. We only have one project where we're doing unscented candle because we manufacture in New York and just our operation is expensive and people are accustomed to unscented being inexpensive. So we only have one project. It's actually partnership with Helen Levi, the ceramic artist. Hmm. And those are cast into forms that she threw on the wheel and those are using organic certified beeswax. So those are meant to not be scented because they're sort of tabletop. They are sculptural and because beeswax is its own odor. But yeah, that's a completely different piece. There's a lot of access to apothecaries and essential oil suppliers and stuff. But there's not a lot of access to the fragrance houses that have, you know, advanced R&D and are designing and creating their own molecules and this really incredible shit that I wanted to have access to until much later when you have either, you know, things that are winning awards and getting a lot of press or you're doing tremendous volume which is luckily those are things that we do now. And so now we're able to work with all these great fragrance houses that are just incredible, but we're still able to maintain our independence. But at the beginning, none of the big time suppliers or fragrance houses want to risk their time or their materials on something that's not a sure bet because they need to spend their time pitching things to Johnson & Johnson and Procter & Gamble because they're going to put a little bit of oil and a ton of laundry detergent. So I guess we're in 2006, 2007. It sounds like the brand itself was growing, right? And then you started doing some of these collaborations. I guess talk through the growth of that over kind of those few early years. What were some of the benefits you were seeing and also maybe some of the challenges of now having almost two different businesses under the same roof? To give you a double case study is my friends who founded Opening Ceremony were part of the cohort that said, oh, you're doing scent stuff. This is cool. Why don't we work on something together? So that ended up being, you know, a mini candle collection based on their vision for their brand and specific Olympic years. This is where my design started to change to become a little bit more conceptual and a little bit less direct and more evocative and about tapping into, for starters, you know, different time and place and sort of using the raw materials to support that. That ended up being super successful, and, you know, I remember the launch event. There were hundreds of candles burning. There was an open bar. There were all these kids there, like skaters, and I walked in. I'm like, oh, my God, this building's going to burn down. This is when things were super fun because it was just kind of all a little bit renegade. And then at the same time, got asked by companies like Neiman Marcus to develop collections in partnership with them. And these were just kind of opposite experiences and different learning lessons because the audiences were so different. And I sort of found myself and my company in the process of vanishing too much in order to take on the voice of a different company. It was such a valuable learning lesson because it's actually not what anyone wants. These people are engaging us because of what we bring, and especially now. But even at the time, we sort of became chameleons and morphed into designing with buyers and merchants when, in fact, we should be designing what we believe their customers will want. So basically, it sounds like as the manufacturing business got built, 
in maybe an objective effort to continue growing, sustaining that, you kind of skewed more towards a private label manufacturer in a way at the expense of your own identity for the company. That's a fair way to put it. Even if some of these things were, you know, theoretically co-branded, financially speaking, some of these were, you know, private label where different company is buying product from us, even if it's, you know, known and acknowledged that we are designing it in partnership with them. If they are taking on the ownership of the product and taking on the risk in terms of the sales and marketing, then yeah, I think it is effectively private label. Yeah. This was also calculated in that I realized that I wanted to develop my own brand in a specific way and get involved in other products, as I mentioned, uh, fine fragrance and just other materials so that it wouldn't just stay as candle. But yes, I could even grow the business in doing this work with other brands. And also I could touch different audiences. So if you take just opening ceremony in Neiman Marcus, for instance, these are people we talk to now. That customer is someone that we want to continue to talk to, but in our own way. We want to reach out to different audiences in ways that are authentic and not just take an existing product, but actually do deep dives into that audience and into what those brands and companies stand for and build product that way. From a business perspective, it was so great to have these other opportunities so that we could continue to develop and explore our brand, but also to not restrict the distribution, but basically to restrict the distribution, to grow a team and to grow our capabilities, but not have to have our own product everywhere, because I think of scent as the long game. If you want to have something that people feel is special in the long term, you have to really make it that way. There's no way to fake it. I mean, you can market it incredibly, and a lot of people do, But if you want to stay around and stay in their lives for a long time and continue to make them feel special, you have to deliver a great product. But I think you also have to make the experience something else. And so how are you thinking through that, I guess? In terms of you're starting to build a reputation, I'm sure there's a lot of inbound, as you said, coming to you. There started to be just tons of inbound. When you're growing and then these different opportunities seem really exciting and they're coming at you quickly and they're coming from these great companies and big brands, you're just saying yes to all of them. Did you learn how to say no? Or how did that happen? Oh, yeah, definitely. But it took a while. We say no all the time now. By the way, there's no exact playbook for it. It's based on still instinct. It's based on, of course, you know, opportunity and brand equity. But it's also based on what stories we want to tell. So we're just as likely to work with a one-man shop, one-person emerging artist as we are to work with a global hospitality company. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning, I was just saying yes to everyone. Yeah. And then developing my brand at the same time. I became friends with a ceramic artist through a mutual client. And we met and just became friends and then interested in each other's work. Her name is Sarah Syhat. She lived in Williamsburg at the time, but now she lives in Nashville. So as we were becoming friends, we also sort of explored the idea of what it might be like to work together. And I would, after my work... You know, I sort of skipped the part where my work then, once my company was incorporated, became my full-time job. I stopped my other job and jobs, and then that just became everything and became more than a full-time job, became like a full-life job. But in any case, Sarah and I became friends and were talking about different ways of working together, and we started to sort of tinker and tamper with stuff and realized pretty quickly that her main discipline, which is working with porcelain, and mine live well together in that porcelain is not porous. And so whether you're putting oil or soap or wax or scent in it, it's a natural receptacle for it. So I basically kind of interned for her 
for a little while. I would go after my work to her studio, kind of just to watch and observe her. And we decided to do a really very limited edition of hand-cast pieces that she made that we would pour candle into. I think we released those at Barney's and maybe one other place, and they sold out right away. So I think we realized very quickly, okay, this can be something. So we started to grow that collection and make it candle, diffuser, and then perfume and soap. And this was, again, something I wanted to do early on, which was to take it out of the world of home and more into lifestyle, which is just what I wanted, again, because I saw this as design and didn't want to hone in on something so specific and become just good at that. But also because I was seeing, you know, why people were wow other clients, you know, in my other part of my brain and the other part of my business, what clients were coming to us for. And so how I saw the future of the market and how I saw the extensions Mm -hmm. becoming important. So the fragrance piece as you go into other products is similar, right? They're still scent and so forth. Did you think it would be easy to extend outside of candles? And then what was it actually like? I thought it would be easy because we already had this great sort of like culty industry darling status, had relationships with all the good buyers, were creating a concept that was pretty novel and cool. And so the immediate move was because we were and are dealing in something that is so tangible, aside from one of the critical parts, which is invisible, how to express that in scent for skin. And so it is kind of different bases and different formulations, but those have to be pretty carefully considered. So the development was not easy. The bottle took us two years to create. In terms of the porcelain, there's some interesting kind of engineering things that we backed into for that. And the soap is rough cut, classic Italian style, saponified three oils and fragrance, and that's it. And the idea was to make them all not rough and not distressed looking, but to not hide the handmaidenness of this. And this is something that it took me a few years to realize that in fact, you know, at first I was striving to make things that looked perfect, but then I realized that's not what our audience was appreciating about us. They were appreciating that this operation is possible because of hands. And, you know, that what we do is at most semi-automatic. And so to just kind of let the differences, not flaws, but let the differences show in the products was sort of epiphany. The actual perfume itself is an oil, which at the time was not being so thoroughly explored. Now there's perfume oils, they're very common. But we did one in a practical travel version and then the other in this dramatic bottle, made in porcelain, dipped in 22 karat gold. As I said, there's sort of some backed into interesting engineering there. And it's an homage to the classic L'Envin bottle, the Arpege bottle, which my mom loved and I always had. But it's our version of it, so it's faceted, it's a little rougher, it has a very specific and distinct silhouette. And so the idea was twofold. One, to make the bottle so beautiful that in fact people would want it to just have and to admire, to display. And then the other piece was in making it oil instead of alcohol was to encourage or basically force people to apply it to their own skin instead of spray it into the air. So again, to sort of keep this kind of physical connection with our customer. And 
yeah, I thought it was going to be super easy. I remember going to visit one of our strong clients at the time to give them an early look at it and, you know, back to the basics of going with, you know, a bag and boxes and samples. And I said, this is what's next. And I brought all this stuff out. And it wasn't until that exact moment when there was complete silence that I realized, wait a second, they might not buy this. They might not be into this. You know, maybe this plan for extension is not the wave. We were going to do it anyway. We were going to distribute it however we wanted. But, you know, this is a key point of sale. And I remember there was just complete silence. And then the boss said, I'm not sure our customer is going to understand these, but they're cool. So we're going to give it a go. That sort of proof of concept, which I realized since I first started with samples and, you know, my first three clients, the kind of proof of concept is important. It's very hard when you're first starting or launching something new, especially if you're really independent and rogue, <laughs> to express to people how what you're doing is innovative and great and special and how they should take a moment to recognize it. When you do have this sort of seal of approval from either great stores or critics, it really helps. When did you think it was formalized? Or like, when did you feel like you had the model? Maybe three years ago. Okay. Almost <laughs> two thirds of the way yeah, yeah. into my company. And what was that moment? How did you know you had it? I think once I started to understand a little clearer how we were working as just this hybrid, you know, as brand, we have this distribution strategy, we have a storefront in Brooklyn, we have an unusual concept there, our space wins international awards, gets covered in all the good press, our launches are followed and appreciated, really just separating that from the industrial business. Once I was able to make a clearer distinction between those two, because even still, they support each other, they learn from each other, they mirror off each other. But I think that was the key thing. And in fact, they're different tangible arms in the business now. So as you're, I guess, realizing, as you said, kind of the perfection and the imperfection and so forth, how are you thinking about, because this is all under your roof, the potential scale, how big this should get, how many clients you should take on, how many runs you should do? And then also, I guess, how that mirrors the distribution, because it sounds like in mid-2000s, you're exploring this kind of limited distribution model that a few years later, and I guess at that time still, but takes the likes of a lot of streetwear and Supreme and all these things of limited quantities, maybe you know mid to higher prices and so forth. So I guess how has your thinking evolved throughout the business between the potential scale you can create, given you have the manufacturing, but actually the potential breadth of distribution you want to create? to continue keeping the value of what you're doing. With the business model that sort of wasn't really formalized until, you know, several years later. This is kind of, I think, 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. The first idea, once we realized that the ceramic was the move, because, you know, Sarah was in a very small studio and it just wasn't exactly my wheelhouse. We figured out different suppliers and were able to test batches that were imported from Portugal and then from China. This was in an effort to try to be able to create a process map that could enable this to grow into not mass distribution, but selective mass. But I remember two things happened with that. One, a shipment of ceramic from Portugal came in and several of the pieces were broken and I was looking inside them and the insides were so different from the outsides. And what we had been making in Brooklyn was stained cast porcelain. So it's a, 
uniform piece. And the idea for candle was that the wax was colored the same, and the point was that it was supposed to look like a solid object. The visuals have always been important to me, and I don't think of it as a fake-out. I think of it as honoring the user experience to make someone feel that they've gotten something that's well-considered and beautiful. And I just remember seeing that and thinking, like, this is not what we ordered. This is stoneware or earthenware that's just painted. And then similarly, a shipment came in from China of boxes. And earlier, I had been able to figure out different box solutions from someone producing in Rhode Island and stuff. But this, you know, we basically made an opportunity by. The boxes came in with one detail completely wrong. And I think possibly a lot of normal people would have said, you know, no one's going to notice this, but it's not what we designed or ordered. And so I went back to the supplier and said, you know, this is wrong. And they said, you know, we'll give you a discount. And I thought, you know, I don't even want this. I don't want this for a discount. I wanted what I ordered. And now I don't want to reproduce these because then this is all going in the trash. It's so wasteful. And in fact, I just don't want this kind of relationship. You know, I'd rather work with suppliers that I can trust and that I can visit and that I know who I'm supporting. You know, it's kind of like going all the way back to the beginning of my thing where I, you know, in an attempt to create a thing that could scale, lost touch with the thing that was more important to me. And then I realized you can scale doing it other ways too. So instead, more organic growth, we started to develop an in-house ceramic studio. And now this is something like eight people on a daily basis, you know, doing industrial design work, making plaster mother molds, silicone molds, milling and CNC and casting porcelain, cleaning, gold, decals, hand finishing. That's what I wanted. That's where we are now. It just took me some time to realize exactly what I wanted and how to do it. All this time, I guess, as it's growing, it sounds like you were using department stores and, and other retailers as the main point of distribution. At a certain point, when does the internet come along? Because all those places, I guess Net-A-Porter is different, but generally those are mostly offline points of distribution. Can you smell these things in the store or are there wraps so you can't? Or do they have samples or testers? You can smell, there's testers, okay. you can smell perfumes and candles in the store. And that's why it's always been so important. Right. And that's why it's important that we have our own space too. And it's you know doubly important because when people come to our space, if we're launching something that's a little bit limited and we know our space is a destination, but we also know that when people come, we're delivering an experience that's quite cool. Because even if they know that we're making the things by hand, when they come into the space and they're there and they can see it firsthand, it completely changes their impression of what Mm -hmm. we do. No matter how you market and express the story to them, there's nothing like actually being in that environment. In addition to that sort of seal of approval, proof of concept. Yeah, it's always very, very important. And I'm so grateful for it, too. You know, people who have real stores are taking on a lot of risk and they have so much expertise. So... I still really value those things. I like stuff. I'm not ashamed of it. And I like to be exposed to new things. I'm really inspired by other, you know, scent companies and beauty brands and stuff. And I really geek out over packaging. Right. It's funny because at the very beginning of my career, there were even rules from department stores. This is like the very, very beginning that they didn't want you to distribute your own product on your own website which now seems, you know, like crazy or illegal. But at the time, it kind of made sense. It still makes sense. They're taking on so much risk, so 
they're helping you to expose your product and be this tangible physical point of sale where people can go and experience it, why are you going to be able to sell it directly to them? But in any case, I try to be offline as much as possible, but I'm not a Luddite or an idiot, and I value the benefits, especially the one of being able to connect with our customer and understand them and create things that they're going to want. So I've always been curious about experimenting with technology and sort of digital distribution. And so this is something that we've done all the time. One more time, we're the first perfume ever on Net-A-Porter, which is in a way funny because now they have everything. They have Tom Ford and Kiehl's and all these really well-known, amazing, awesome brands. And so it's funny that we had the first thing, but we still continue to be a really strong seller there and we have a connection with them. We had the first, I think it was candle, maybe scented product on Guilt Group, hmm. which was really different at the time. I think first perfume on Birchbox, very early and ipsy. The way we work, our e-commerce is so niche in its way that the data is important, but it's not that rich. And so in working with these other companies who are only digital, we're able to sort of test and navigate those waters a little differently and kind of see how we want to position ourselves there. Because God knows, despite all the various attempts, selling anything scented online is a major challenge, despite what anyone will tell you. And we want to understand it as well as possible. Mm -hmm. Is the biggest challenge the obvious one of just people don't know what it smells like? That is the biggest challenge, yeah. yeah. We also, in fact, did a perfume a couple of years ago called Foxglove. We launched it exclusively on Net-A-Porter and on our website before we even had our store. And we got a lot of emails and calls asking, this sounds so cool, how do I smell it before? And we said, you can't. You just had to give it a go. A lot of this is testing to see, you know, how far can we push this mm -hmm. thing? You know, we're doing this other initiative since... October of this year, it's been something like 10 weeks going where we launch a new product every week. And they're all completely new. Uh, a lot of them are with other brands. And to see how far we can push our own capabilities and our point of difference in this weird industry, and to see if we can't drum up excitement and desire in a way that other companies can't because of how they're formed. I mean, yeah. we have an unusual proposition in that we're actually designing and making the stuff. So I think it's a good transition into the A24 collab. So I'm curious to talk a bit about how that came about. And then also to what you're talking about before, as you'll describe the way the candles are named, I think is an intuitive kind of allusion to the smell. But then beneath that, you have all of the actual complexity of the smell. And so it seems like an interesting kind of device almost to try to bridge that gap of giving someone a hint of what it could be without maybe spoiling it or confusing them about what it could be. This one is such a good example, too, because this needed the clarity of vision that we have now. Because this project is really totally co-branded. It's co-distributed. It's only through their side and ours in our shop. We're not competing with each other. We're supporting each other. The messaging is consistent. But at the same time, we really recognize our disparate contributions to the project. So they gave us tons of freedom, but the idea was pretty clear from the get-go. It was to do not a signature scent, but a collection of scents inspired by movie genres. And to do it through sort of their lens, 
using our skills, but not for them to be about kind of A24 movies, but to be about something more overarching. The way that works is they come to our studio. We have a lab there. They go through some of the raw materials so that they're seeing things that are, again, not blended accords or anything, but our client or partner will brief us on a thing. So we have a starting point. And then we'll prepare raw materials that we think can be the foundation for these different scents. They come in review, and then we sort of go our separate ways for a little bit. And the great part about this project is the brief was so strong. It's funny. It's just an easier thing to develop because for noir, there's like classic movie references, like typewriters and like cigarette butts. And for other ones, you know, monocles and... Anyway, so th this was a really great way to kind of position the development, but then to let us go off. Then we, we work through various iterations of the fragrance, communicating pretty consistently, but then also my team is disappearing to kind of like do our work in quiet. Then there's just tweaking and refining so that things like, you know, adventure, there's a couple ways you can go. It's either green vines and Tarzan swinging, or it's sand and cover your heart. and So that's fun because we get to be free, we get to challenge things, we get to make sense that aren't conventionally pretty, but are totally on the money. And then really quickly, some of those scents sold out. We'll reproduce them, but it's so awesome to be able to, you know, not saying we've cracked the code or anything, but we're inching toward it. There are ways to get people to take a chance on a thing if the value that you are providing seems worthy of the investment. It's so interesting because I feel almost a similar thing. For some reason, when I go get sushi and I'm looking at the list of the rolls, because it's just usually a list of ingredients, and I'm trying to like make sense in my head, what do these things actually taste like together? I feel like I've gotten better at it, but for a long time, it was a huge kind of barrier, and you end up just going towards kind of the safe choice. It seems that the messaging, especially online, plays such a similar role where, I don't know, it tends to, I feel like, go towards such technical messaging of like almost ingredient list, but... It was, as you said, cigarette butts. Everyone knows what that smells like or concrete or all those other ingredients. And so the precision or the nuance of that messaging sounds like either such an interesting tool or such an interesting barrier almost. Yeah, exactly. Um, especially moving it's a double-edged sword. Exactly. Well, and also, I mean, all the fragrance ingredients, not all, but 99.9% .9 of them that you read online, the fragrance ingredients are just complete fantasy they are sort of real-life representations of what these synthetics and aromachemicals are supposed to synthesize. And I'm not at all against aromachemicals. Even the ingredients we extract from nature are chemicals of sorts. And there's this huge misunderstanding about synthetic versus natural and niche versus corporate. And I don't care that much about these. I have my own feelings about them. The importance for me is having our own, you know, value proposition and also with respect to what's inside these things for us to just really clearly illustrate what we use, what we support, what we believe in, and then let our customers make their own decisions because convincing them is not the right way. And educating them is almost a form of convincing them now anyway. Also, there's a lot of people who know a lot more about fragrance than I do and a lot more about the ingredients. I'm not a chemist. I'm not a perfumer. I kind of have picked this all up along the way. It's just that our company now, through this weird path that we've taken, has this wealth of knowledge that ends up being really valuable. So I'm curious to talk about the space a bit. I mean, obviously, a physical space 
from a manufacturing design perspective was the beginning of this. It was there from early on. When did you start to realize, oh, we should have this be consumer facing? We actually should go open up a physical space. And what were the qualities or experience you wanted to deliver in that? So we moved relatively quickly out of East New York to a different space in kind of Bed-Stuy and then another better space sort of in the Bed-Stuy area, an industrial facility, and then kept growing and then found this space one time when I was actually driving to the airport. I saw hmm. an available sign and I called when I came back and then sort of impulsively just had a vision for what it would be and moved us. And this is a you know late 19th century former rigging garage. So it's a garage that used to house trucks. Mm. So it's very long. It's such a great kind of perfect New York space. I just remember from our other experiences, I want us to be in control of our own destiny. And so that's why in terms of packaging middle people and in terms of fragrance houses and other people we engage with, I want us to be able to totally call the shots. And that's why we develop our own fragrance. That's why we own all our own IP. And this is just its own building. It's its own weird self-contained ecosystem. Many people have called it a sort of Willy Wonka-like operation. And it kind of is. You know, we immediately outgrew it. So it's hardly perfect, but it's a great home. And so what we have there is most everything. Office, lab, production of candle, small batch production of soap, and small, very limited batch perfume. Generally, we're using the space for experimentation and developing fragrance and formulas. And then we will have one of a number of different labs actually produce those in bulk for us. And then we have the ceramic studio, industrial design. We even have all of our like corrugated and box pack out stuff, peanuts and everything. Then in the front, we have this storefront. And so number one, it was just so we could have maximum control. But number two is just, again, part of my understanding of what people wanted from us. They didn't want for there to be a curtain. So what we did is pretty radical. It's to completely remove any suggestion of a curtain by having even the guts of the operation be accessible to visitors and mm-hmm. to the naked eye. An open kitchen, effectively. An open kitchen where you even see, you know, like the drums of peanut oil and stuff. The butchering you, and so forth. Exactly. And so through a different mutual friend, I met an architect called Alex Miller. He's a lighting genius and also a great architect with a, his partner, Jeff Taylor. They have a company called Taylor & Miller. And he has a fascination with garages. And this space, of course, was a garage. So we started talking about the possibility of working together. And then it just happened. And so we first did all of the practical safety regulatory stuff. And then brought in Alex and Jeff for the forward-facing retail portion. And we're addressing a couple things there, this open kitchen conversation. Where does the making end and then the retail begin and the line is completely blurred it doesn't it's always there and then also this idea of the retail apocalypse where you have to really offer something super special or you have no business having a store what jeff and alex designed is these structures that are hot rolled steel with oak veneer on the other side and so the hot rolled steel side has exposed conduit. It has all the markings on it. They're all suspended from the super tall ceiling that we have in our studio, and they're all on tracks. 
And so they're modular, they move around so that we're still able to do our industrial work, but the space is able to transform either just to be so we're open for business or so we can do intimate or larger scale events. It's evocative and beautiful because it's who we are. You know, one side is refined and perfect and the other is rough and industrial. And there are these niches that are illuminated by these LED strips. And so it's really echoing the cast mold relationship that we have in basically everything we do, whether it's perfume, candle, or porcelain. What's it been like having kind of that Lego distribution under your own roof when generally distribution was not in your building? It was away. It was in all these other points around the country or the world. It was online in some cases, which again is in, in the ether. What did it inform, I guess, having it you know, literally next to you or in the same building? Oh, it's the ultimate mission still is for us to have this connection with our customer, to understand them better. And not just so we can sell them more stuff, really, so that we can make things that will make a lasting impression and hopefully stand the test of time. It's just awesome data. It's awesome to be able to experience them in real life. And so we have almost all our product and then we have some rare third-party things and books that are sort of like part of our world or lifestyle and some that are custom-made for us. We also just have things that are hard to find. So we're a proper destination. We're in Clinton Hill, you know, a block from the Navy Yard. So, you know, it's either trek by train or they're coming in a car. So we are a proper destination and people who come generally really want to be there. There's plenty of walk-in traffic, but the destination traffic is really exciting. And sometimes people come from different continents to see what we're doing. So Mm -hmm. it's cool. It feels good. And it's a great different way to express and to learn. How do you think about price as you've Mm -hmm. kind of gone through this journey in terms of who you want your products to be accessible to, but also knowing that there are scale limitations, whether they're objective or also self-imposed on some certain projects? I feel conflicted about price, actually. Because in my heart, I want us to be able to reach as many people as possible, those who want in. But at the same time, what we do is so expensive to produce that we're generally skewing towards like quite high end or hyper high end. I'm not at all insecure about high price points because I just know that it's going to be for a specific audience, generally speaking. But the idea that the business is separated into two extreme arms is kind of my way of reconciling that. You know, at this point, we do scent identity, whether it's commercial product, scent distributed through the HVAC systems or freestanding machinery. We do that in almost 2,000 locations globally now or in perfumes with other companies. That's our way of a different sort of expression. You know, we're tens of millions of people are experiencing a thing that this company has created. And so my main dilemma when it comes to price point is that we want to, you know, honor and value our own work and we want to grow the business, but we want to not only be accessible to rich people. What's been the cheapest and most expensive lesson you've learned building the company? The most expensive lesson I learned kind of is going back to one of the earlier things we talked about, which is letting buyers design product. That's where you can see kind of your model and your cost of goods and your things spiral out of control because your vision was started to get tampered with, even if it's not, you know, malicious. Those have been some spicy mistakes. So the cheapest realization or lesson learned was free. 
And I think it's mostly in the past two and a half years. I have a son. I spend a lot of time with him. If I'm going to be working, it has to be for something good because otherwise I'd rather be spending my time with him. And he wasn't really interested in this. I urged him toward this a few times, but it just caught on where we're reading Where the Wild Things Are. And we just read it for the first time. And so we read through it again the other night. And the end of it, where, you know, Max is the king. He has no rules. He's just partying and playing and swinging from trees all night. All the monsters listen to him. He's got the crown. He's got, theoretically, everything he wants. He's brought back to his home by smelling the dinner that his mom has left out for him because even though he's been awful, she's his mom and she's still taking care of him. And the idea, you know, it just keeps coming back to me, the idea of the power and significance of scent and those feelings and memories that it conjures, you know. I kept this away from myself for a very long time and that's why I always, you know, described it and even considered it. But now I think it's something more and I'm more open to it. And I think the things that we're doing and the things that we're going to do in 2019 are because of that kind of acceptance and that willingness to take it more personally, to take more risk and to stick my neck out a little more. Do you think that as we move into just like an increasingly digitized world where people are alone more or together more or both, their heads are in their phones more, they might be going out more or less, Do you think scent is becoming increasingly important? Do you think it's always been important? How do you, like at a macro level, think about it? In a macro level, I think it's always been important. Do I think it's becoming increasingly important? Yes, definitely. And then in the micro level, we have all the good designers come to us. So we're sort of the ultimate trend forecast because they're all expressing to us what they see as the future of scent or how they want to harness their own storytelling and turn it into a scent. And for years, the stories are related and they're very much about, you know, ritual and comfort, firewood and palo santo and, and, you know, amber and these kind of things that have a history and are sticky, sappy, real. To me, it was just always so obvious that people were gravitating toward these things because otherwise they're being kept from nature and kept from you know, that sort of warmth and comfort. They're being kept from it by themselves. There's also something interesting, I guess, from a memory perspective of if Facebook introduced a world of digital permanence and then Snapchat came as a response and Instagram stories as a response of a response to kind of fleeting moments of like scent as a tool of memory almost when maybe there are not as many digital artifacts. Mm. Like you could posit that the digital world attempt to somehow replace or augment memory but then now we're trying to like kind of flush some of that down the toilet because we actually don't want that much memory. And descent come back is some sort of interesting trigger of that. It's very true. I mean, as someone, again, who's not exactly a Luddite, but kind of old school <laughs> and someone who's never had a Facebook, LinkedIn or Instagram account, I'm aware of them. I see them and I find, you know, the stories so much more interesting and exciting. But it's also sort of going back to this idea of putting something on the line. If you want to really make a statement or say something... But you know it's going to vanish in 24 hours. It's not a real commitment. It is exciting, but it's still not a real commitment. And so our thing, we are going to experiment quite a lot digitally 
we're going to continue to. And then next year, we have some major initiatives with respect to this. But at the same time, you can't let go of, yeah, scent has an impact. It's emotional and physical. And so we can't let go of the impact that we're making in an offline and real way, too. Mm-hmm. How long do you think this could go on for? And I guess, how long do you want to personally do this for? I need at least another, say, two to three years to say what I want to say. And now, you know, I know really clearly what I want to do in that period of time. Otherwise, I don't know. I really like this world, and I think it's just so many different other things it touches. And I'm good at it, so it feels good to be good at something. But there's other media I would like to explore, too, and always intended to, and always will. So we'll see. Where's the name from? The name is from the first wax base, which is, again, this tropical palm oil wax, and it has this, just the way it's naturally heated to a specific temperature, it has this shimmery, crystalline finish to it. And I wanted to use something short and abstract and to not use my own name. Joya means jewel. Interesting. What are you excited about going into next year? Our own brand is going to completely evolve in the new year. Because I I was curious about, is it the same one you started with? Or is it Uh, different? No, it's already evolved, but it's going to go basically into, I'd say, a 4.0 next year. We're changing the user experience entirely. I mean that mostly offline, but just some of these things that I've taken for granted. But everything from just the way you open a thing is going to be completely new Mm -hmm. and something I'm very excited about. Did you feel like you ever lost touch or, I guess, deprioritize the thing you started with being your own brand as these other projects, as manufacturing and collaboration and so forth? No, I always wanted to take it really slow. I personally admire people who drop new, you know, line extensions all the time and have these like perfume flankers and new things all the time. I think it's quite cool, but I never sort of wanted that for us. And there is a conflict there because you can personally think, you know, we have four fragrances. They're not trendy. They're meant to last. So we're going to just use these for now. But, you know, the market doesn't agree with that. They want newness and it's understood. And so I've just wanted to take some time. And unfortunately, for me, sometimes taking time can mean taking a long time. But it sounds like everything you've built is on that foundation and it still exists and sounds like it's improving every year. Yeah, I want things to be the way I want. So yeah, maximizing control as much as one can. Yep. Knowing that, in fact, control is an illusion. Things happen, and then your inspirations and plans change, as they should. And then new opportunities come along. I think if you have a fixed idea and a plan, then you should be open to those other inputs and ideas. Awesome. Thanks so much for talking. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. You can read full transcripts of the podcast and join the newsletter at loosethreads.com. Feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. And thanks to George Drake Jr. for editing this episode among 80 others that have brought us up to the 100th today. We're going to take a break for a little while, and we'll be back with a whole new slate of episodes and shows in 2019. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.